This is Rusty Reno with First Things Magazine here in New York for another episode of our podcast, The Editor's Desk. And with me today is Hadley Arcus, a sometime professor of jurisprudence at Amherst College and founder and director of the James Wilson Institute. And Hadley's here to talk about his March 2022 article on overturning Roe. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me in, Rossi. It's an honor to be with First Things again. Oh, well, it's great to have your piece. And you, in this piece, it's, it concerns the case before the Supreme Court. It has to do with a Mississippi law that prohibits abortion after 15 weeks, the Dobbs case. And certainly those of us who are concerned about the sanctity of life we tend to fixate on the results of that the court would suffer. Of course, we want it to overturn Roe, but we neglect how the court reasons. And that's really the, the leitmotif of your essay, is that a great deal turns right. on how the court reasons. Right. And that, that, that sense of how reasoned affects the question of how we understood what the result was that we're aiming for. Uh, in the conventional conservative jurisprudence, the problem of Roe was that the courts exceeded its jurisdiction. The, the abortion was mentioned nowhere in the text of the Constitution. Therefore, it was simply an exertion of raw judicial power for the court to say anything about the subject. Uh, but of course, Marriage is not mentioned in the Constitution before the uh, courts struck down uh, interracial marriage, the ban on interracial marriage in Loving versus Virginia. But for the conservatives, generally, the, the real problem was simply the, ex, the, the uh, overextension of the court. It's, a, it's taking upon itself the, uh, the authority to uh, override the laws of the state. But the question, but in this sense of the matter, the problem of Roe would be settled as soon as Roe was overturned and the question of abortion was sent back to the states. Of course, we understood that abortion would be restricted in places like abortion and in places like Texas and Mississippi, but that it would go full throttle in uh, uh, California, New York, or uh, California. And my friend Jerry Brophy said, is this why we were in the streets marching all these years, simply to take the matter back to the states? The concern of people has been with the poisoning and dismembering of babies in the womb. And the conservatives have given much uh, thought beyond that matter, returning the matter to the states. Because the question arose 40 years ago, could Congress, under its powers under the 14th Amendment, to, to uh, uh, consider those rights restricted by the state, could Congress uh, legislate to protect babies in the room. We found important conservative voices saying that, um, no, the Congress couldn't do that just because, once again, abortion was mentioned nowhere in the text of the Constitution. It could not be part of those enumerated powers that the Congress was uh, justified in exercising. So we have this curious case where we don't seem to be prepared for the aftermath. If, as we suspect in the Dobbs case, that right to abortion will be severely scaled down, perhaps rendered simply a facade while the substance is removed, or it will be struck down entirely. 
another place is conservative jurisprudence has very little to say about those matters that have animated the pro-life movement from the beginning, which is the protection of the unborn, of those small human beings in, in the wombs. And that's, uh, in fact, as you say, the reasoning matters because we heard uh, the argument over the years from some of my own friends and, and our very best justices that uh, the matter is returned to the states because uh, it's a matter of value judgments as to how people value the life of the child in the womb. Now, value judgments was a term that came with to us from Nietzsche and Max Weber. And so we, it, people began to use that when they stopped speaking of moral truths. So they spoke instead of value judgments, those things that had value because we imputed value to them. Uh, Lincoln said in the gravest issue of his time, the question is whether the black man is not or is a man. If he is a man, then he too has the right to govern himself. And the late Harry Jaffa said that, that question. The uh, question is not, uh, uh, Lincoln was not asking people about what their value judgments were. That's what he, Harry Jaffa put this point. It's the truth of that, the matter. Yeah, not yeah, yeah he, assumed there's a, he assumed there's a truth of the matter. Right. And Harry Jaffa was saying, well, the question whether the black man is a human being cannot be, quote, a value judgment. Well, neither could it be a value judgment as to whether that child in the womb becomes a human being. It has been, become a, been a human being from its very first moments. So it, there's, there's a the kind of false statesmanship to put this, think of sending this matter back out to the states under the assumption that there was no truth on the government's matter about the state of that child in the womb. And that we're leaving this now matter to arbitrary sub feelings of, um, and value judgments made in the separate states. You can see from, uh, I mean, the rule of law has a formal aspect, that is to say, well, you know, if people don't follow the rules, the procedures and what have you, then the rule of law is discredited. And conservatives often put a great deal of emphasis on that. But, you know, if you look at philosophy of law, it also has a material aspect, the rule of law. Um, I mean, the way I would think about it, you know, federalism, surely that's good political philosophy, but what about homicide? <laughs> and that the rule that strikes at the heart of any rule of law. I mean, if if you have a rule of law that permits homicide, then it just strikes me as it, it discredits the entire um, the entire legal regime. Right. Well, you know, it's you've got this curious thing that when the conservatives are focused on on substance, they, they rail against substance to substantive due process. You know, Daniel Webster said, you know, it's it, we simply simply can't say that any Anything passed into law has the uh, substance of law simply because it's been passed by majority with all the trappings of legality. There is the, as you suggest, the enduring question of the very substance of the legislation. Now, if you go back to Roe versus Wade in, in, in uh, 1972, 73, the, the, the state lawyers for Texas were simply trying to make the case that the state was amply justified in casting the protections of the law over this small child in the womb. And it was a compelling case drawn from uh, the 
most updated findings of embryology woven with principled reasoning. What is the ground on which we would think this child, this offspring of Homo sapiens is anything less than a human being? But for the conservatives, that was not the matter on which the case should have been handled. It was simply a matter that the court was extending its jurisdiction. So it, 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 so now, now the question, let's say they, they strike it down, we're still left with the original question, as you say, the question of substance. You know, the, the, old, the question was raised as far back as Lincoln, and we could state it again this way. Is this regime of constitutional government, a democratic government, I was, is it all substance, it's all process and no substance? Are we free to choose virtually anything? Genocide, slavery, destruction of children in the world. Are we free to choose any of these things if we simply have the vote of a majority? Does, this, does the system itself, the very principles of a constitutional order, begin with the understanding of what is a human being, the human being is subject and object of the laws? And if that's the case, how can it be neutral as just as Kavanaugh said in the, the hearings of the Dobb case, the law should be neutral. I don't see how the law could be neutral on that fundamental question of who constitutes that human person, as John Paul II used to put it, who constitutes that human person who has a claim to the protections of the law. Now, the great fact, it struck, struck, struck me the other day, the fact that so many of our friends want to put that question outside the perimeter of what people in judicial authority or lawyers should be focusing on and addressing these questions as a mark, as, as you say, is how, of how the arrangements have shifted to things that are quite me mechanistic and steering persistently around the questions of moral substance in these cases. I mean, why, why do you think conservatives shy away from the moral aspect? Because there's, there's the, there, there is the, one of those unspoken truths, because in their heart of hearts, from the conservative side, they too have fallen away from the conviction that there really are moral truths out there. I mean, the left denies existence of moral truths by affirming the doctrines of relativism. But for the conservatives, there's been a shying away. My late friend, Justice Scalia, used to say, we can't get a consensus on the natural law, on these moral principles. We don't try, or the, the, we hear, hear the sense quite often by even by friends today, that if judges are to go beyond the text of the constitution, if they are to appeal to those principles, moral, principles of moral judgment outside the text, then they're operating on their own. They're simply looking inside themselves. That is, they work with the premise that there are in fact no body of truths outside the text. So they have tried to comfort themselves with the notion that they simply work with the text before them. They've seen persistently that, that that just doesn't work. They are persistently, even the conservatives are persistently drawn beyond the text of the Constitution in order to explain what they seem to be sensible uh, in the Constitution. But I think what you find is uh, a falling away from the conviction. They, they become seriously to doubt that we either they, that there are those moral truths out there, or that we can expect other people to to respect them. But now, you know, in recent years we have arguments over originalism in that respect and focusing on the text. Yet we find people coming into serious disagreements about the meaning of originalism and 
the kind of conclusions you can draw, as with Justice uh, Gorsuch suddenly discovering the rights of transgenderism. Right. And so we define, so we discover, lo and behold, people can disagree under the rubric of originalism, yet that doesn't seem to impair the assumption that originalism has truths to impart. And we say, well, why doesn't the same understanding attach to the moral reasoning that long antedated the law would be there even if the Constitution were there? Why does this erosion of conviction on the part of conservatives? In fact, one of the telling signs here is I see as my friends on the other side keeps invoking text, structure, tradition. Why does move constantly to tradition? We say, well, they want to see, see if they can evoke some precedent in the past in order to relieve them of the need to explain what is true about this matter. Um, so if, if, if we, we, we find uh, Charles Sumner, if we find Charles Sumner during the 14th Amendment thinking that the 14th Amendment really bars racial segregation, we, this, that question remains for our day. Okay, he said it. We know he said it in the past. But what are our grounds for regarding it as true? True then or true now? You know, it's, it isn't, it's a play on the old euthyphro, isn't it? Is the old good because it is old? Or has it become old because we think there's something about it that's enduringly good and true? So the, the, uh, the move to tradition is another one of those little dodges that conservatives use because they really are diffident about the claim that there's a moral truth that underlies and justifies their judgment. Yeah, I would think that as a, I mean, certainly in the Bostock case that you mentioned with Justice Gorsuch, it's pretty clear that the animating, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a um, kind of a ridiculous originalist argument on its face, but it's clearly motivated by a concern that these denial of employment in these situations is is unjust. And then he seemed to have reverse engineered an argument to show how that's actually rooted in the Civil Rights Act. But you know, there there, and you know, I think he's reasoning wrongly there. But I don't find myself as a citizen angry that he's engaged in moral reasoning. I would kind of want that from my judges and in, in, at least in, 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 these, in these fundamental matters. But you're right, we, the conservative movement seems very um, anxious to avoid that. Uh, yes, well, take, take, that, take, take that very example. One of the, that's a decision that will promise to disfigure this country and the culture for a long while. As a conservative, and Justice Gorsuch dealt with it, what, what, did, what did the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mean about, the, about the, the definition of sex? How did they understand sexual discrimination based on sex? Well, you could go back to the uh, definitions of sex in the, in the, history, in the dictionaries of 1964, uh, but the question, the question remains, what in fact is the objective meaning of sex? You know, um, the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith years ago said, there has not always been an Italy, there's not always been a Hungary, but as long as there are human beings, there must be males and females. Well, what sex means is that essential, objective, necessary truth 
of what distinguishes and must distinguish males from females. Now, the curious part is all the conservatives are trying to deal with the text and what, like, how we understand sex at the time. They don't appeal to that objective, deep truth that underlies everything else about what sex is and must be. So, but the point is, it's, it's been a kind of operating code, even among conservatives, to keep steering around those questions of moral substance at the heart of the case, either because they're too diffident, they can't actually render a moral judgment, or because, they, well, that's not our judgment to make. We should make, make, put that judgment, let that judgment be made by people in the political arena. Or when they come to make that judgment in the political arena, are you sending it back to people in the political arena with the overriding assumption that, of course, there are no truths for you either? That it's all a matter of your own personal feelings and what we call value judgments. So, again, I'm starting to go around in that one, Ben, but I think I just want to bear out your point that the operating code has been consistently to steer around those questions of moral substance that are at the heart of these cases. Well, you know, I agree with you that in steering around these fundamental questions, we actually weaken uh, our case in the public sphere rather than strengthen it. And you, in this article, you have just, it's a, I think it's a, a very powerful moment. When you propose, you, you, you ventriloquize, ventriloquize, whatever you say that, you act as a ventriloquist for the judges by drafting two different opinions or a paragraph, key paragraph from two different opinions. And the one, the first one, the case has been amply made by now and settled the findings of embryology that the child in the womb has been a human from its first moments, a distinct life and not merely part of the mother's body. The legislature in Mississippi is amply justified in extending the protections of the law over this small human being and, and you go on. And in effect, saying that the, you know, no doubt that opinion would, all, would go on to speak about the, the, um, the lack of, of jurisprudential plausibility behind Roe, but it really comes into focus that the Mississippi law is justified because it, it vindicates the right to life that is the foundation of any sane society, any just society. And then you go on to this other one, it's a, which is marvelous juxtaposition. So, so let's call that the, the, the decision that raises before the public the moral substance uh, 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 behind, behind the protection of, of the unborn. The second opinion that you ventriloquize goes as follows. The question of when human life begins or what is to be regarded as a human life in any stage has been con a controversial matter, matter heatedly debated, eluding consensus and explaining our politics. The judge of the court have no clear answer. And then you want, we therefore send this matter back to the people in the states to deliberate upon again and to make their value judgments on when human life begins and so on and so forth. I, I do think that a huge amount turns on that, those two different paths forward that you so. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, very succinct. I really urge readers to, to look at the article and that to me it was a really, a really brought into very concrete form 
the conceptual point you're making about the importance of moral substance in jurisprudence. Well, you know, in the first one you read, as you say, it, it says, we begin with the recognition that we, we yes, we must know what a human being is. Uh, this, this regime was dedicated to the proposition that you may not rule human beings in the way human beings are compelled to rule dogs and horses, or that God may rule man. We must know what a human being is, who, who is the bearer of rights, including the right to be governed with his own consent, or the one who has claimed his protection of the law. Well, if you begin with that, you say, okay, we know that we're dealing here with an entity, a, a small being who's been human from his first moment. So we're sending this matter back to the states, not to determine whether we're dealing here with a human being. That is a matter beyond question any longer. We're, asking, we're sending it back to you to consider how you, how you reconcile the grounds for taking this human life with the grounds that you accept for the taking of any other human life. You know, it, it, we seem to, we should, should assume that once we're dealing, we understand that we're dealing with a small human being, that we should understand that the, the laws on homicide should ever be indifferent to the question of whether we're dealing with uh, with child's with, even different to matters of age and size and height. Yeah, as you uh, point out, with, you wouldn't say that because yeah. the person's a midget, they're, they they enjoy less protection under the law than a you know a football player, you know a down lineman for the Cincinnati right. Bengals it, who's three hundred pounds. We we don't say that the killing of an old man is as far serious homicide as the killing of a small child. So people have decisions to make about the terms on which they describe fault and hold people responsible for the kill for the killing of a small child. There are all these decisions to be made, but. The critical point is it, it should not be that we have to have let the people or invite people to give us their feelings about the question of whether they are dealing with real human beings. So as you say, I think it does make a profound difference. But, it, but the, the sobering point is that the second one you read is the line that has been favored by our friends doing conservative jurisprudence. That's we, we don't have we have no judgments to make on the moral substance of the matter. All we know is that this has, the federal courts have no business in dealing with this, and so we send it out back to the political arena in the separate states. Do you have any hope that the decision or one of the, one of the opinions written by one of the judges will go in the direction of that first option that I read that you composed? One, one of the reasons for doing the piece in your and my favorite journal, is that it is read by uh, some of the judges who really matter and who who will who I think would take it seriously. So I mean, it, but you're, you're running against a current of tradition of a line of conservative jurisprudence that's been in works for 50 years now. It's going to be hard to, to overcome that, but. Um, just perhaps by raising this question, just as you have here, will make people look again about the, what, how we are sending this back into the political arena, under what premises, you know. So, um, and also, what I'm, yeah, I've certainly had this, this thought, Rusty, that yeah, if we send it back, the conservatives may not be providing enough leadership on this matter, but it could, you know, the, when the court makes a decision, if the court decides 
to overturn Roe versus Wade and and sort of release all the understandings in the country that yes, we, the recognition takes place. We are dealing with the killing of small human beings. That that itself could have even that move could have an, a, a notable effect in shaping the attitudes of people, even in the states now that uh, are so strongly pro-abortion. I agree. We should be surprised. We I should agree. be surprised to see a pro-life, pro-life moving reawakening in New York and California. I agree. The law is a teacher. And even if the court reverses Roe on relatively what you and I would think, you know, far too narrow grounds and far too um, formal procedural reasoning, I think ordinary people will get the message like, whoa, our judges are, are you know, are those whom we've entrusted with uh, to to you know our judicial system, they have they have, they have second thoughts about abortion, and I think that could trigger second thoughts across a wide range of our fellow citizens. So I, I share with you the um, the hope. No, I yeah, I think that look, it's uh, remember the Emancipation Proclamation. It simply freed all those slave those slaves within the the jurisdiction of the Confederate States to weaken the, the Confederacy as a war measure. And yet, people understood there was a deeper principle behind it. There was an anti-slavery uh, dynamism there and premise there that was driving it. And the Supreme Court, say in the Brown case, all it did was make a decision about uh, uh, racial segregation in schools. But so the question, well, how does that question apply to racial segregation in swimming pools, in housing? Uh, the question began to point that they, even that limited decision began to point to a larger principle judgment. It took, the court still hasn't worked its way through that principle judgment. But as you say, the law, the, the courts has ever been a teacher. I mean, uh, I, I was years ago, I was in, looking for an apartment in Washington back in 1965 when the court came forth with Grizzled versus Connecticut on contraception. And I was, I think, 2013 to 14, I was going to the court to see the um, argument over the um, uh, it, it, it was a Burwell case uh, with um, on uh, Mr. Mr. Green and the, the craft stores. Yes. Um, and um, requiring employers to to fund abortion in their place, and the and the landscape that day was filled with young women with signs saying, "No, this is my fundamental right," and it's. Um, yes, and my employers should have nothing to do with it, something to which the employers would readily agree they didn't want anything to do with it. But the point you see how that culture has been transformed, that we create a situation. And, was, and this was clearly the, the effect of the court's teaching. It's the court mm-hmm. that brought forth this dramatic change in the culture. And, uh, and so, as you say, it, we, we shouldn't underestimate the way in which even a limited decision could ex- generate, have a radiating effect going well beyond the limited holding of the court. Well, here's hoping that we get um, a good result and good reasoning from the court this summer. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for taking the time to talk about your wonderful article on overruling Roe in the March 2022 issue. And if Listeners are not subscribers, then shame on you. You should immediately run to your nearest uh, 
um, click to your, to your nearest First Things website and, and subscribe. So thanks again for being on the, on the podcast. Thanks so much, Rusty. Okay, thank Definitely. you.